This morning's sermon will be paced on chapter three of both Ecclesiastes and Colossians. Therefore, we will have two readings. The first is Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 14, found on page 988 of the Pew Bible. The other is Colossians 3, 22 through 23, found on page 1793. Here is the reading from Ecclesiastes. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Please turn to page 1793. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Thanks, Libby. For the next five weeks, we're gonna do a series called The Art of Normal. And it's partly because What I'm finding more and more as a pastor in this particular society in which we live is that people are finding normal the hardest thing in their life to accept. And it is, creates anxiety and frustration and fear and all these kinds of things, and they just can't accept it. And the problem is, is that <clears throat> that's what life is made up of. And what I'm finding is, is that it's, it's as true for Christians as for non-Christians because it's such a strange misunderstanding. When you look at um, Ecclesiastes 3, those particular verses that we read this morning, there are two things that God puts forward towards human beings, it says. It says that, that one is a burden and one is a gift that there's a burden that God has laid on all of humanity. That is, all of humanity feels it. And it is this burden, that we love the beauty of the moment. We have a capacity for present pleasure and fulfillment and happiness. And yet, we are conscious enough to be aware that it is vaporous. Right? The book of Ecclesiastes starts meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. The Hebrew word literally means vaporous, right? It doesn't mean it's without meaning. It just means it's transitory. It's not lasting. You can't sink your teeth into it. You can't hold on to it. It's not going to last. And everything is like that in human experience. And we, we love the beauty of the moment. Everything, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Right? But... God is also, it says, put eternity in the hearts of human beings. So in all of our hearts, we actually want to be part of something, produce something, create something, achieve something that really will last. But nothing that we do, in fact, does last. Nothing that God doesn't also do. And so as humans, what we want is one of two things. Either we want to be able to create something or be part of something that really is something and that really will last and therefore find our significance in that, or to be entirely free of trying to do that and be able to live totally in the moment, enjoying everything that's beautiful in its time, sucking the marrow out of life, enjoying every minute. We want to do one or the other and we want to be unconflicted about it. And the problem is, is that that will never, ever, ever happen unless you destroy your human conscience and you reject what you are as a human being. You either have to become a god or an animal to be entirely embracing of one of those two things. The burden that's laid on human beings is that human beings 
must either accept what they are or to be in, or to be for their whole life tormented by what they are which they can't accept and that is creatures with eternity in our heart who can't make anything eternal able to enjoy every moment conscious enough to want to make the moment last and yet unable ever to do so The only way out of that burden, this passage says, is for people to revere God. That it is only by seeing God as God, and in relationship, us as ourselves, that we can be freed from either the animalistic desire to be free to only enjoy the pleasure and beauty of the moment, and actually bear the divine image like we're supposed to, and yet not try to be gods and believe that we can create things that are eternal, which we can't. We're just people. And in the midst of that, we can actually then, if we will, through faith, escape the burden God has put on all of humanity, we can experience the gift of God, which is simply this. It says that there is nothing better for men, that's all humans, to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink, that is, embrace the normal repetitions of life, and find satisfaction in all his toil. That phrase, in all his toil, is very specific. It is meant to make it sound bad. That's why the word toil is used there. He could have easily said work. He chose not to say work. He chose to say toil because he knows that the roles and the repetitions and the rhythms of our life have a conflictedness to them that feel terrible to us. We can't believe we have to do the laundry again and to put the kids to bed again, and to mop the floor, and put the chairs up on the tables before we mop the floor at work again, and again, and again, and again. We just can't believe we have to do all this again. And in the midst of that, that's where we're supposed to find, to what? It says to be happy, to do good, and to find satisfaction. That, that's all there is for humans to do. What we're supposed to do is embrace what we are, to be happy, do good, and find satisfaction, and to revere God. And in that, some of our work God does with us, and in so doing, he makes it eternal. Or, in doing it as an offering to him, the things in our life that cannot last become eternal in their significance because they're done in love and they're done as worship. And it is only if we get that that we can actually experience what we're meant to experience. And the reason why this is so important for us is that most American Christians believe embracing the toil of their life and finding their satisfaction and happiness in it and learning to do good in it, even though the good they do won't last, is something that Jesus saves them from, and it isn't. Jesus saves you and transforms you in such a way as to embrace your humanity as conflicted as it actually is so that you can do the one good thing humans are supposed to do. You can escape the burden of that conflictedness. You can be happy, do good, and find satisfaction in the repetitions of your life and realize that that is the gift of God. You notice it doesn't even say a, it doesn't say it's a gift of God. There's lots of gifts of God. No. There's one gift of God. Us being redeemed through Christ so we can be what we were created to be, that is human beings in God's creation for his purposes, to do that. And if you can embrace it and find our happiness, do good and find satisfaction, that is the gift of God. That is salvation embodied and experienced. And one of the reasons why people are not more interested in the message of Christ that we spout is because we don't experience that. And they can feel the fear and the anxiety and the frustration and the anger that we have in and related to our own lives. And they see that we're not totally at peace with it. And they know that we haven't really learned to be completely human in that redemptive sense. And they realize, therefore, we don't have the answer. And they can smell it on us. And so we say the answer is Jesus, and they go, yeah, I don't probably think so. It affects everything we do, every impact we have on every person, and the significance of every moment of our life. And it's the reason why some of us hate our work. We wish we could get out of our 
marriages, because we, we cannot thrive in the ordinary, and we're being crushed by the burden that God has lovingly, lovingly put on the backs of every person, because that burden was meant for you to feel the futility of trying to be an animal or God or an animal God, and you aren't any of those things, and you have to release and let go of those to be what you were meant to be, and to sense God's redemption, and to experience true humanity, and therefore the burden is loving, but if you— It only has its effect if you will revere God and release your desire to either have a eternal imprint so that your grave will be always visited, or to just be able to free yourself to drink in the beauty of the moment and have no concerns for everything, anything beyond it. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to talk as examples of this at some of the bigger roles and rhythms of our life. Work, marriage, parenting, friendship, and leisure. And today, I want to focus on embracing thriving in the ordinary, specifically in the realm of work. Nothing special. Silly way to spend your life, I guess, fussing with a bunch of flowers. Sometimes I wish I was good at something else. I don't know, a doctor or a missionary, someone who really helps people. I do love flowers. Always had an act for it. So I do my best to make them beautiful for people. But I know flowers can't change the world. I know I don't make much of a difference. I'm just a florist. In the church, we hear an enormous amount about the purpose of our lives is to take the message of Jesus to other people. And that is true. And that comes in the last third of the Bible. And it is meant to rehabilitate the real purpose of humanity. The reason Jesus came was to save us from how we've broken apart from one another and how we've broken apart from our very selves and what we were meant for. The purpose of humanity doesn't come in the Gospels. The Gospels rehabilitates true humanity through the work of the one true God-man, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. But what did he come to do? What did he save us for? And he came to save us for our original purpose, which was work and community. But Genesis 1 and 2 don't focus on community. They focus on work. Work, properly understood in its holistic sense, is the purpose of our lives. So let me first clarify, what do we mean by work? And work is whatever you do that you rightly have to put your hand to today, whatever it is. There's three, there's three words sometimes we use in this area. Work, vocation, and employment. Work is 
just the toil of the day and your roles and responsibilities. Whatever it is you have to do that's your responsibility or role to do is your work. Vocation is when you specialize to do something and through which you serve others. And most of us specialize in some kind of vocation because that's just how life works. And employment is when you use your work or your vocation where you trade your work voluntarily with others. That's called employment. Employment is one form of work. And it is not the only form of work. It's just most convenient for us. Oops, sorry. It's just most convenient for most of us to specialize so much in our work and then to trade other people to do all kinds of other work, which we call economy. So we are all called to work. Most of us will specialize in a vocation, which allows us to trade our specialized work through employment. And all of these are expressions of work. Does that make sense? So the first thing to say about this, I want to talk about the theology of work and then the, its, it, its application and its dignity. So first, um, our labor, all of our labor or work is valuable and significant because we were created to work by God. In um, the very beginning of the Bible, this is how the Bible starts. The Bible starts with God who works, and at the end of his week of work, he creates humans that are made in his image who are made to work. This is the whole beginning of the Bible, and this is the explanation of God's purpose for humanity. That after the seven days of his—in the, the sixth day of his creation, the last thing that he makes is humans. And it says that he made men and women in his own image, and then it says—he says this—he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over everything, basically. That is, that he says that there's only two people when he starts, which is kind of an interesting thing to start with. He really could have made two billion if he felt— if he jolly well felt like it, he apparently didn't make the oceans teem with living things. So every other living thing that he created, he actually did create a lot of them. And he could have created a lot of people and made us non-sexual creatures. Would that have been fun? Right? But instead what he did in this case is he just makes two humans, and he tells them that part of their purpose is to do the multiplying themselves. And then that they're supposed to, to rule over the world, subdue it, Right? To, that is, have dominion and rule over it is usually how it's translated. Now, in our pre Western, late Western liberal—I could put a lot more adjectives on that context—when we hear the word dominion and rule over, we tend to think of them within the categories of oppression liberation, because that's what most people are on about these days. That is not how these words are meant, and it's a—it's it's called an anachronism to take a modern category and put it back in a, on a past thing. In— the way we're supposed to interpret dominion and rule is specifically related to how God embodied dominion and rule in the preceding verses. So in the first chapter of Genesis, it says, in the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And he didn't make them complete, it says in the very next line. When he did that, the earth was formless and void. That is, he created a primordial creation and then fashioned it into its fully formed creation. Now, why on earth would God do that? Right? This has nothing to do with our debates about the age of the earth or origins or any of that kind of stuff, or to work that all out scientifically or ideologically or philosophically. Right? St. Augustine wasn't a six-day creationist because he believed that God created everything in an instant. Six days is way too long. The story is just told this way to help us understand God's purposes. Right? What's the, the purpose is, is that what God wanted to say to us was that God was a creating being and a fashioning being who took these materials of his own creation and brought out their creative purpose and formed them into the things of beauty that filled the earth that he would then say, these things are good. And then, instead of making lots of humans, he just made two— he declared them made in his image, and he gave them the specific job of continuing that work. To shepherd, care for, tend to, be creative with the entire world, but that includes authority to have dominion over it and to rule over it, just like in God's creative work. And that's how we're supposed to understand those two words. That God creates human beings in the train of his own creative work where he makes something and then adds creativity and action and labor to it 
so as to bring out its full potential and what it can be. And not only has he given us that work, he's also made it a dominion. So he didn't say, I have dominion, you do the work. Here's what I want you to make. And he gives us the plans and fabrication strategies. He doesn't even actually do that. He actually stops working himself. And he gives not only the labor, but the creative and artistic and engineering decisions to us as well. We get to choose how we do it. The full work is given to the human beings that he creates. And then in chapter 2, he comes back to the same theme again as he's making the man and the woman. First, he puts the man in the garden, and he says that he does that so that the man can work and take care of the garden. And then in the context of that, he says, wait, it's actually not good for him to be by himself, because this mandate cannot be fulfilled by the man alone. He needs help both in the work and to make the more humans necessary so the work can cover the entire world. Because Adam and Eve, even if they were everlasting beings, still would not have had the spatial capacity to bring God's creative enterprise to the whole earth. There has to be reproduction. And so there's a woman, both so that the man isn't alone, so that there is community, there is reproduction, and there is holistic work. And that all happens in a little bit under three pages. And sometimes that's referred to as the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, when God says, go out and have dominion. But the reason why it's important that these things happen in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is because sin hasn't entered the story yet. And so everything that is in the story up until this point is God's intention, is the way it is supposed to be. It is the purpose of creation. And so in Christian faith, we refer to work as a pre-fall ordinance. That is, we know it is God's intention for us because he created it when he declared everything good and nothing evil had yet come into creation. And so because work and gender and marriage and sex and food and these things happen before the fall, we know that they are part of God's good creative intention for us. And we can be unconflicted about that. And when you look at the work in the first two, one is have dominion over everything, which is kind of like the president king role. And then the other is, hey, take care of these flowers. It's like the, it's like the gardener person role. And both of those equally embody his command to work. Whether it's statecraft, macro science, or whether it's snipping grass to make things look nice, all of that is embodied in the task given to human beings to work. Now, there's a second thing in the theology of work that's necessary to really do it for God and not men, and that is to understand that work is fundamentally conflicted. If, if you don't understand this, you won't be able to accept the Christian teaching on hardly anything in relationship to humanity. Um, these next five minutes, if you don't already really understand this, it could be one of the most important five minutes of your whole life, I promise. Okay? Um, Work and everything that is most fundamentally human, in fact, everything in all of creation, exists between God's original creative blessing and the curse that has come through sin and human choice in how we embodied what God told us to do that has brought a curse on the blessing of creation. And therefore, everything in creation exists in a conflicted state. So in Genesis 3, one of the things that you'll notice in this passage where God lays out the curse is that everything that he curses is specifically central to everything he created. He doesn't bless certain centrally human things, and when the curse comes, the curse is laid on peripheral human things. No, no, no. When we sinned and brought the curse upon ourselves, the curse came and laid upon everything and therefore most drastically affects that which is most central to our existence and most blessed by God's creation. That is why the most important things to us are often the most conflicted things in us. So if you look at what he curses, he says this. With a woman, he's going to greatly—he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And— he says, concerning his, her marriage, your desire, desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, most people think, well, that's where patriarchy got started. That's not actually—that's where bad patriarchy got started. In Genesis 4, there's this place where um, Cain wants to kill his brother Abel because he's angry. And God says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and wants to have you. 
but you must rule over it. Meaning, inside of Cain, in his hatred for his brother's godliness, he had this conflict inside of him of he wanted something, and yet the thing that was going to be subverted had to be stronger and win by forcing its way over the other. So one was working to subvert, the other was to force the subversion to not happen and block it. And so that there was loggerheads, there's internal fighting inside Cain's spirit until he gave in to one or the other. And what he's saying is, in the curse, the genders that were created to be in the most beautiful, complementary harmony with each other, in each other within the union of marriage, and out of that union to produce children in the, a thing of absolute astounding beauty, embodying the divine image together. Instead, there was going to be gender chaos, even within marriages, and especially within them. And so the having each other and not being alone and creating a helper suitable and all of that blessing laid out in Genesis 2 in creation is the very thing that inhabits the curse in Genesis 3. And for the man who is called to go and work the garden, he specifically says, curse is the ground because of you. Is the object of each person's work and the relationship of the two together, it was the things that were most fundamentally human that became the most conflicted. And when we, you think about this a little bit, think about it. Where do we find it hardest to really embrace normal, real life and all of its rhythms, roles, and responsibilities? Where are the things that are the most difficult for us? Right? It's all the most fundamentally central human things that we feel the greatest sense of alienation. That's why we're always fleeing our responsibilities, right? Your work, right? Your work is the thing you cannot help but try to find an enormous amount of fulfillment is, and, and it drives you freaking crazy, right? Yeah, if that's not true, get a job, right? Or it's all how all your employees feel because you put all the crappy stuff on them, right? Or two, marriage and romantic love. The world will always be filling up with breakup songs, right? Even when Justin Bieber is old. And yet, people will still be dating, in, in, in a time where cynicism about marriage is at maybe the highest it's been in I don't know how long, still 80% of single people want to get married. We're enormously conflicted about it. When you ask married people, when you're like, you're like, what's marriage like? And married people go say something like this, um, even if they have good marriages. Why? Because they experience the conflicted nature of marriage. The genders, the genders are compatible. They are complementary. When two people are godly and they function in sync with each other, it produces some amazing things. And there's this complement of gifts and complement of loves, and it creates a place for children that both has, has a full-orbed group of responses to all the children's needs. It creates a fence and a nest. It it's beautiful, and yet they aren't usually being godly all the time. And when they're not, they— in very interesting ways, know exactly how to make the other person crazy in the worst and most aggravated possible sense that they would love to kill you. <laughs> Nobody can destroy a man like his wife or a wife like her husband, except maybe their kids. <laughs> and yet, marriage is this incredible blessing, and yet it is also this place where the curse resides in one of the most painful possible ways, right? Gender relationships, that's been going really well, right? Um, even intertribal cooperation, like one of the things, economy is this thing where we can specialize and have vocations and work in our vocations and grow better in skill and then trade with other people and produce enormous wealth through incredible cooperation. But what do we do instead? We do some of that, right? Most of us all have vocations and jobs where we trade with another and do things and work and all those sorts of things. But then what are we also doing? We're getting involved in wage wars, and we're lobbying the government to give our company a special deal, and we're going to try to get past this person, and we're going to advertise their thing as a higher quality than this. We're going to buy this company's name and put it on the piece of crap that we just manufactured so that they think they're getting more than they are, so we can actually extract more work from them than we give work to them. We're always warring with all these other factions in our work and undermining the glory of the possibility of economy that humans possess because of the divine image. Our economy is conflicted. Think about it. What's all the blank warfare in our country? Class warfare, gender warfare, income warfare. 
families coming apart. You take all the social problems that secular people who don't have, like Jesus at all would say these are the big problems. Even if they don't share Christian worldview at all, they still know what's going terribly and all of it goes right back to the most fundamentally human things that have become conflicted in the entrance of sin. And so if we don't have a certain amount of godly, gospel-centered realism about these areas of our life, because they are conflicted, and because we are so shallow and vacuous that we don't yet see their beauty, and we haven't mined out of them the happiness, good, and satisfaction that they can give us if we revere God in them, we will flee all of the things that really are what make up real life. And we will live a false humanity full of concocted engagements and activities that reject everything God has actually given us to be and do. And we will do it as Christians. And we will wonder why the message of Jesus doesn't do more in our marriage and doesn't do more at work and doesn't do more in our child rearing and doesn't do more between the genders and doesn't do more in economy and politics and doesn't do more in caring for the environment and conservation. It doesn't do more. It's because we will not accept the truth about ourselves and we want Jesus to save us from having to be human when Jesus is the one who cared enough to become human to teach us how to be one and to save us so we could really become one. And it only happens when you really accept what you are as a human and wholeheartedly embrace the real roles and responsibilities of your life in their proper rhythms as toil. And it's only then that you'll say with Solomon, there's really nothing better for a human to do in their life but to be happy, to do good, to eat and drink, and embrace the real moment because we're passing creatures, and to find satisfaction in all our toil, and to revere God that he is the only one that makes anything that lasts. And if there's any lasting significance to anything we do, it's only when we co-labor with him. That is, obey his commandments and walk in faith. So what does this all mean then? What would it look like to embrace the dignity of work and the conflictedness of work in full human dignity in real life? What would that look like with some practical realities? And so let's look at three. One is um, actually believing in the intrinsic dignity and worth of your work. And if, you're, if you don't have a job, remember, that's just employment. Work is anything that you're supposed to do today. From getting up and putting on clothes and doing laundry, to being a student and studying in school, to obeying your parents, to fulfilling all of your roles. All of that is work, and all of it has intrinsic dignity. It is not a means to another end. It is an end in itself, and you were made for that. You are the means to its end. We spend our whole lives taking the things that are the ends in themselves and trying to change them into ends for us. We want to make the things means because we are the ends, and it's the opposite. You are the cannon fodder. We are the means to those ends. The burrito is the end. You're the means. This is something that you got to wake up every morning and build that conviction because your flesh is always going to be fighting against it and you're always going to experience it as conflicted in the world. And so you have to wake up every morning and say, I am here for this day. This day is not here for me. I am here to revere God and embracing everything that's human about me. And so everything I do today, I'm going to try to be in the moment doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing at that moment right then and to do it with beauty and to do it with worship and to do it to serve my neighbor and to recognize the thing I'm doing is a good in and of itself and not just a means for my income or my advancement, but it is an end in itself as I serve my neighbor and glorify God. And this is true of all work. From the most menial work to the most whatever work. Whether you're, you're cleaning out bathroom stalls or whether you're doing a job that you really wish you weren't doing or whether you're doing a job that everybody hates because they think you're making too much money. 
whether you're hated by the culture or whether you just hate your job. All of the different sectors of work, there's mainly five of them, right? Labor, craft, profession, entrepreneurship, and investment. Those are the main sectors of economy. All of them are absolutely necessary. You cannot have a human society without them. They all hate each other, though, unless they understand that all work is dignified in Christ. All of that work needs to be done. All of those works have their own ethics to them that should be embodied, and all of those groups of people require accountability and appreciation. All work is dignified. It is true of all work. Whether you are a prince, whether you are a hedge fund manager, whether you are a nurse cleaning up bodily fluids, whether you are a police officer serving a community that may even hate you. All of the work is worthwhile, and the work that the people who hate you do is worthwhile. And lastly, that work is for everyone. I want to stop on this one for a second because I think it's one we need to think about. Um, as Christians, we believe in charity, and we believe in loving people who are caught in unfortunate situations and that we should care for them. But if we're not careful, we will allow it to undermine the biblical concept of work. The concept of charity comes later in the Bible. And doing charity is worthwhile work. Receiving it is an effect of the fall. And all people, if they're going to fully embody their humanity, must give themselves to work. And we should never undermine that or take away its proper incentives. So here are some examples. There should be no indolence among us, right? There's a huge difference between indolence and unemployment. Unemployment is the will to work, the willingness and desire to work without opportunity. Indolence is an unwillingness to work, either because you're lazy, because you're gaming the system, for whatever reason, there should never be indolence among Christians. There should always be hard work among us because it's what we're created to do. Even if you can't find remunerated employment, there is still work to be done. I'll get to that in just a second. There should also be no complete retirement among us. What's retirement? It's okay if you get to the point in your life where you no longer have to engage in the same employment and the exact vocation you've utilized during your employment years. But it doesn't mean you get to not work, right? In Luke chapter 7 or 9, I can't remember, where there's the rich guy who has a really great crop, and it'll actually pay for him for the rest of his life, and he goes, I'll just build bigger barns, put this all in the barns, and then I won't have to work. And Jesus says, the proper response from God is, you fool, your soul will be required of you. You're going to die tonight. And because part of what Jesus goes after is the man's lack of generosity, right? He, the man wasn't rich toward God. He wasn't generous. That, that was part of the reason that he was killed. The other reason he was killed is he was supposed to be generous, and he was supposed to keep working because he was made for work. Part of how retirement can be sinful is when we don't retire into a different kind of work and ask, how should I embody what I was created to be in these later years of my life, but instead say, now I don't have to work and I can give myself to, entirely to unproductive leisure. Right? Moving a golf ball doesn't help and love your neighbor. And we'll get to how, how leisure can be part of loving God on the fifth week, but there is an indolence to retirement, even if it's funded, that is inhuman and that no Christian should embrace, though I hope every Christian gets to retire. Third, purposeful unemployment. If you are unemployed, you still can find something to do to put your hand to or heart to in this day. You can watch your sister's kids. You can volunteer at a school. You can, there are things that you can do. There's always work to be done in fallen humanity. And if you can't find employment, it's okay. Work, nonetheless, and you will be much more likely to find employment because people love hiring people who believe in the dignity of any kind of work. They will put their hand to anything if they can help their neighbor and worship God and work. So never let unemployment stop you from working. God will never judge you for being unemployed. That's not a loss of your humanity. That is part of what happens in the fallen world. But when you don't embody what you are meant to be, when you refuse to work, 
That is when you sin against what God has created you to do and be. Fourth, the wealthy should work. If you have enough wealth that you don't have to work or you don't have to work hard, that has nothing to do with whether or not you should work. The level of your riches has no bearing on what you were created to do. You were created to work. You were created to do something to bring out the creative potential of the world, to participate with your neighbor, to live engaged to the world. I don't care if you have $15 million or $15 billion. You can be like Bill Gates and decide you don't want to write code anymore and you want to work on poverty in Africa. That's totally fine. The Bible says nowhere what your work must be. It just says you must be engaged in fruitful labor if you are in the body that is not dead. And even in in situations where people are profoundly disabled or in their frail elderly years, one of the great vacuums of this world, one of the Motown songs said, was that there's not enough love. Loving other people emotionally is itself work. In fact, it's one of the great unremunerated works that women actually do do a lot more of than men. Just making things nice for people. Smiling, telling them they're going to be okay, they're going to make it. That being there for people and expending emotional energy for the good of others is work. And you can do that if you're disabled, you can do that if you're frail, you can do that in many different contexts. And it means that for the rest of us, we should not be happy with falling way below our potential in our work capacity. Because what you can fall down to in your work may be the only thing another person might move up to in their work. Right? What what is the 24-year-old with Down syndrome going to do? He was made to work too. But if you're comfortable vacuuming floors somewhere and playing video games in your mom's basement, you are depriving him of the work opportunity that God would give him because you should be doing productive work that makes messes so he can work and clean them up. Which is why laziness among people with capacity is itself sinful because of how it hurts our neighbor. Kids should work. Why do we raise kids to not work? Why do we not give them chores? Why don't we insist on them doing them? Why do we encourage them to to fritter away their life in the most vacuous frivolities? Why does that sound like good parenting? Why is making sure that they play more what they really need? I'm sorry. It's, it's just not—you can be like, well, you know, if they play soccer, it raises their self-esteem. Not more than working. Right? It, it raises their self-esteem more than if you entrap them in an unplugged refrigerator for eight hours a day. Yes. But it, it doesn't—it doesn't—doing something that isn't real life does not prepare kids more for real life than doing something that is real life. It just isn't true. And we demand so little of our children, and when we do, they amuse themselves with things that are even more disgusting. Like, I cannot tell you how much it bothers me to watch a kid play a farm game on a tablet who cannot make a real bean sprout. Or somebody that thinks they're cool because they can play a video game and kill a hundred Russians in 25 minutes, but they couldn't actually load a real AR-15 if we were invaded by aliens. They can't actually do anything they play games about. Like, doesn't this blow your mind? Doesn't it make you crazy? Kids, doesn't it make you crazy? You want to gather eggs from chicken? Get a chicken! Right? You can have four in the city of Madison. Just keep it in your bedroom. And one of the reasons why kids do that is because you and I don't employ them in interesting creation-based creative things. We're not really that productive. And so they can't connect with our workplace job oftentimes, and so we're boring the heck out of them. So why wouldn't they play a video game? I mean, it's half the reason why my son has like 90 tilapia in his room. 
right? Swimming around in 250 gallons worth of tanks. We're always fiddling with the filtration, figuring out how to make this work. Because I wanted to be interested in something productive and real and meaningful and biological and scientific and creative rather than just like, Dad, where's your tablet? I want to play a stupid game. Kids should work. You should demand they clean up their messes. A four-year-old can adequately clean a bathroom. About a 10-year-old can do all their own laundry. Why are we teaching them to be indolent, to expect other people to do things, to be entitled about their lives, and to think work isn't what they're made for? Work isn't a curse. It is a blessing that, that attends on or is infected by a curse. It's under the condition of a curse, but it is itself, in its natural nature, a blessing and a good and what we're made for. We do no one, no one in any stage of life, in any stage of wealth, in any stage of education, any service, by not helping them recognize the fundamental dignity of work. And I'll tell you this too, even people who go to work kicking and screaming, find a dignity in it when they put their hand to something and are appreciated for doing it. One of the other Made to, made to Flourish videos is about a guy with a bee company. And he's like, he just got really into bees and he started making like bee stuff and he, was, he thought it was great. And then he was at a Bible study with all these like ex-cons and ex-prostitutes in Dallas. And he's kind of like, what do, how do these people support themselves? What work do they do to have their put their hands to? And so he's like, do you guys want to keep bees? Right? And it's like all these African-Americans and like beekeeping isn't really big in the African-American community. And so they're like, what? He's like, yeah, bees. We'll do bees. And they're like, okay. And so he like buys a whole franchise starter pack for them of like beekeeping stuff. And it's like this video, they're like all putting on the suits and like fear. And then there's this one guy, he's like, man, I never thought I'd do bees, man. But I'll tell you what, it is so amazing to like see the bees grow and to get the honey and to sell it and to learn finance. And like, you could just see like, he's like, I was around these guys and they just, they, they had their, and it, it belonged to them and it was their thing and they were working. And the, just the dignity that this guy had was unbelievable. Right? You do not have a right to a five-day work week or a 40-hour work week. The Bible says, on six days you shall work, and on the seventh you'll rest. But remember, your, vo your vocation or your occupation is only part of your total work. Right? All that it doesn't mean you, have, you get to not work over 40 hours. Listen, if you live in an affluent enough society and the politics are such that you can't work more than 40 hours, you know, whatever. But that ain't Jesus. Right? God said, you were born to work, and then one day, you're supposed to rest. And we should support actions that uphold work's dignity, both as a church, politically, charitably, and personally. We should create productive work for others if we can. If we have the capacity to be entrepreneurial and create jobs for other people, we should. Business owners that create good jobs for people and seek to give other people meaningful work to do, they should be heroes to us. We should think that they're great, but we should also value everybody's work too. And here, here's one that may sting a little bit, and I am speaking to some of you younger people. A Christian view of work does not accept the idea that there is something inherently better with Christian work or nonprofit work than for-profit work. Nonprofit work can be just as destructive, just as rent-seeking, and just as crony as for-profit work. For-profit work has actually more um, controls and more um, accountabilities built into it because people have to buy this stuff freely. There's no—now, nonprofit work is good. There's nothing wrong with nonprofit work if you can get people to fund it. And there's nothing wrong with ministry work, obviously. I think it's good work. I think it's important. But there's nothing better about it. There's nothing inherently different. There's so many 20-somethings that like want to work for nonprofits. I don't understand that. It is, I think for most of them, it is coming from a non-Christian understanding of what work is. Everything that we do to bring out the creative potential that is in the world for the good of our neighbor is work. The fact that other people are willing to pay for it simply proves that they do wish to trade your work for their work because they find it valuable. It could easily be argued that for-profit work is more dignified and more righteous because it necessarily functions between free, free people trading their labor with each other. 
rather than getting somebody else to pay for your labor that you're allegedly doing with some other people for some end that may or may not be scientifically proven or working, but just may cause them to feel better about themselves because they gave money to it. Now, remember, I'm not saying nonprofit work isn't good. I work, I lead three nonprofits. Okay? I believe, I, but I believe that nonprofit people have to be very careful about the self-indulgent thinking that we engage in about the importance of our work as regarding to other people. Hopefully that, no, that was offensive for you. I'm sure it wasn't. Um, the second application is, is that Christian workers, and this, these other two will be much quicker than the last one I just did. Um, Christian workers need to attend to both skill and integrity. Oftentimes Christians think, listen, I, I am, have you ever heard somebody say, um, you are, if you're a banker, you are a Christian missionary um, cleverly disguised as a banker? Have you ever heard that kind of, like that sort of statement? Yeah, okay. Um, on one level, that's totally right. Right? The gospel has to go everywhere where there's people into every circle of influence. And if you are at a bank and you're the Christian person at the bank or one of you, you are meant to carry the gospel into your circle of influence in a certain way. You are a missionary. But you're not, not a banker, right? If you are a banker, you are a banker cleverly not disguised as a banker because banking is worth doing. It's an end in itself and you should do it well. You should be a really good banker. Right? Which means not only should you be able to do math, but you should not say to a mother who calls in and says, um, hey, did you take those charges off my thing? Hey, wouldn't you want to remodel your kitchen and bathroom? You could get a home equity loan. You would have enough integrity to realize that you are, you are using a marketing means to inflame the flesh of somebody, to use their money irresponsibly in a way that will possibly hurt their family, hurt their children's future, and so on. You, you would be able to say, wait, I can't say that. That's not good banking. A good banker wouldn't do that because we're supposed to be investing in good things. We're supposed to be helping people see what would be productive, giving them the capital to do that productive thing so they can leverage it to increase wealth for themselves. Not for them to do idiotic things so that they'll lose all their money, but we'll get 7% of it. And you can make similar aggregations of that for any occupation. Right? Any occupation. And we should seek to have integrity, but we should also seek to have skill, right? There is nothing godly about a Christian shoemaker who can quote Genesis entirely from memory and is very bad at making shoes. Or a Christian who wants to go into politics because they know what's right, but they're not interested in policy making or statescraft or foreign policy. Or somebody who cleans for a living, but isn't really into getting the corners. But loves a bunch of verses in the book of Philippians. You and I should be, have integrity, and therefore part of integrity is working hard, but we should also seek to work skillfully. And if we work hard with integrity and with skill, it's very likely that the mission part of our work, carrying the message of Jesus wherever we have influence, will go a heck of a lot better. Because we won't be constantly stealing from our bosses and then turning around and talking about how great Jesus is and how generous he is. Lastly is that every day, every minute, we have to more and more revere God and in doing so in our work, working for God and not for men, not, for, not only not for men, not even for ourselves. Remember that verse in Colossians, whatever you do, work with all your heart, working for the Lord is not for men, which I hope you will write down, which I hope you will memorize, which I hope you will recite every day to yourself when you get out of bed. The context of that in the book of Philippians is it's written to slaves. That is, in all work, no matter how bad the work is, you can work for God and not for men, not even for yourself. You can do it in work that stinks, like slavery. You can do it in work that has bad outcomes. I don't know if you know this, but in the story of in Genesis, the story of Joseph, right? There's a seven, seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, and he saves untold lives by interpreting Pharaoh's dream and storing away all this grain. And I mean, he saves many, many, many lives. But you know how the story ends? It is his job to properly charge an increased market fee for the cost of grain. 
which means the Egyptian people run out of money at some point, and then they have to trade in their animals. And after they trade in their animals, they have to sell their own freedom and their own land to the monarchy through Joseph, and Joseph himself facilitates it. The people become the Pharaoh's slaves in a way they weren't before through Joseph's work as the prime minister because that's what happens in the economic flow of those 14 years. It ends kind of badly, and nothing negative is ever said about Joseph in Scripture because that's how the economy played, and it was his job to do his job, and he did save many lives, and the other people didn't decide in the years of plenty to save lots of grain. They were put in a bad economic position, and it was his job to sell, his, sell the stuff and to capitalize on it economically the way he was supposed to as the prime minister. I'm sure he did not like that outcome. But his work was still dignified. That was his job to do, and his job was worth doing. It's also true if you have an evil master. I mean, some of you don't have, just have bo bosses that are jerks. You have bosses that are evil. Or you don't even like where your industry is going. I've heard lots of people in the medical industry say, I do not like where this industry is going. And even if it is going in an evil direction in some places and under some bosses, it doesn't mean that the work itself is not dignified and worth doing. In 1 Kings 18, there's a guy named Obadiah who works for Ahab, whose wife is Jezebel. Ring a bell? And, that kind of rhymes. Um, and he, like, the, the wife is killing God's prophets. Ahab is doing everything idolatrous possible, trying to get people not only to not do what's right, but to entirely reject God. And this guy is second in command. He's like the main prime minister, and he is a devout believer. But the people of Israel need a prime minister. And even though the drought he's trying to manage is a curse of God because of the behavior of his boss— He's still trying to do his job with all the dignity he possibly can. And listen, there's a lot of rot that Christians talk about. If your boss is a bad guy, you should just quit and get another job. I don't know that that's a biblical idea. 2 Corinthians 6 says that you shouldn't make business partnerships with people who are ethically untoward because of what it will do with the clashing of your ethics. But it doesn't mean that you can't labor or work or have a profession or do craftsmanship or invest with somebody who is just not great because that's where your job is. You may not just have a work that stinks or fear that your work will ultimately produce bad outcomes. You might, you might actually think that you're serving an evil boss who is working for evil ends. That doesn't mean that your work is illegitimate. Listen, not every person at Chick-fil-A can wring their hands about how many people will get fat because of the convenient location of Chick-fil-A and now the Culver's right next to it. Serving chicken is worth doing, so they do it. It is God who sees all ends, not us. And it is other people and other dynamics and wider godliness and things that you can't control that determine certain outcomes that you can't foresee and in some cases shouldn't even try. And all of that work is still work. All of it is work that needs to be done. Listen, if we only did jobs that we all felt super good about at the end of the day all the time, with its income, what end it'll produce, who we work for. Listen, the unemployment rate in this church would be somewhere around 87%. Work is fundamentally conflicted because of the fall. You probably will do some things that you could be blamed for in your work by God's divine majesty. And that is one of the reasons why it should be dear to you that the death of Christ pays everything. When combined with faith Because you have to work And your work will be conflicted And you will get dirt on your hands By being the human you were supposed to be And it is because of the absolute and complete atonement of Jesus You can with bravery enter into that Into all these incredibly complex human problems And seek to bring about some good Knowing that you will fail And whatever good you produce will only be temporary And vaporous and yet it is what you are called to do. And in it, no matter how conflicted it is, it has the dignity of being our purpose and our nature. And you can be happy in it. You can do good. And you can find significance in all the rhythms and roles and responsibilities of your life. And if you do through Christ, if you work for God and not for men, you will experience the gift of God, Christ's redemption fully embodied. I hope you come back the rest of the weeks of this series as we try to explore this together more fully. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray that you would help us to be people who through Christ's redemption come back to the embodiment of what you've made us to be. And namely this week, I pray that you'd help us to think about work. And I pray that for many of us, you would completely revolutionize what we think we're doing Monday through Friday or whatever hours and days we work. Whether it is for-profit work, non-profit work, wage, labor, craftsmanship, professional work, entrepreneurship, or investment, whatever we do in whatever sector, for profit or for not, we pray that you would help us to see the work as an end in itself for the good of our neighbor, for the glory of God, that we are meant to do, and that in it, if we see that all of our work is vaporous, no matter how good it is, and that it's meant to be conflicted in the blessing and curse in which it exists, and that we can, through faith— by revering you and entrusting in Christ, working for you and not for men, we can be happy, we can do good, and we can find satisfaction. We can find the gift of your full salvation. Please help us to experience it. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit to see it, to know it, to understand it, to, to have it in a deeper place than it's ever been, whether it's mothering children or whatever it is. Pray that all of our work that we would experience the dignity and enjoy it like we should. And we pray that it would be of some good that would be of praise to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.